Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. Well, good morning, Windsor Christian Fellowship. I'm so glad you've all joined us today. I hope over the last few weeks you really enjoyed James and Stephen and Derek as they ministered on the Holy Spirit. That was a very powerful service. And I know that last week, Pastor Larry, he talked about the church, the Holy Catholic Church, and it was powerful as well. Our worship teams have been leading you into the presence of God. Our volunteers have been serving faithfully. We're loving everything that God is doing here. So many faithful people stepping into the roles that God has for them in the kingdom. I took some time down, kind of. Uh, I moved uh, a lot of dirt uh, to get our garden set up, about 10 yards worth. And, uh, you know, I'm so looking forward to the fresh pesto that my wife is going to make with all the the basil that we plant. (laughs) And uh, anyway, today we're going to work through, uh, we're going to work through the Apostles' Creed. We're going to finish it off. And... As a, as a prelude before we go into it, I wanted to just explain to everyone, like, this series was birthed, you know, from a heart for the church to know what sound doctrine is. And this world that we live in keeps inventing all these weird doctrines right now. And, and there's all these strange things that we keep hearing about. And people come up with these new ideas and they try to rethink theology. And maybe sometimes we can reframe it, but I don't think we need to rethink it because it's been pretty established for a long time. And it's easy, if you're not well-versed in your, in your Bible, to get confused with some of the winds of doctrine that have been blowing through lately. And uh, here's some, not all of the heretical doctrines that I've heard, but, you know, I've heard that Christians need to return to Judaism and we have to start practicing the feast. And while I have no problem with Christians practicing the feasts, um, unless you're one of our Jewish brothers and sisters, I see no need for that in the New Testament church that we have to return to all the Old Testament laws and uh, those things. Then um, there's numerous passages actually in the scriptures that refute this. Uh, One guy I know, he rewrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because obviously the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John must have missed something. So he filled in all the conversations, like 130,000 words more than the original text have. Doesn't the Bible say in the book of Revelation not to add or take away from the scriptures? Just something to consider. I've heard people tell me that God used evolution to produce humans. But if he made us in his image, I don't think his image was a a tadpole at one point. Recently, I've heard that if you lay on the grave of a deceased person, you can absorb their mantle or soak up their anointing. How about, there's teachers out there today that will teach you that sexual relations outside of a marriage covenant, which we define as a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others, is okay. Or there's this statement, all paths lead to God. No, they don't. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's one path that gets you to the Father, period. I've heard people say that all religions are equal. They're all trying to accomplish the same thing. I've heard people say that Jesus wasn't really God. There's a lot of bad doctrine out there today. There's a lot of false beliefs. But I want you to understand something. It's not just the words we say, because they are powerful, and they they create, but you have to learn to align your beliefs with the words that you're speaking. This is what's going to create the best results for you. When you know what you believe, it gives you a foundation to attach your hope to, to attach your faith to, to attach your words to. In Ephesians chapter four, I'm going to start in verse 11. It says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. How many like gifts? Does anyone like gifts? How many like gifts, when people give you gifts. Christ gave us a gift. And this is the gift he gave the church. Apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to what? 
equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. I've been around a long time. I've been saved about 40 years plus, Christian, serving God. I was pretty young when I gave my life to Christ. I want you to understand something. I think that you're going to see apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers until the end when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. Because there's a constant maturing of the saints that has to happen. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't quite arrived yet, have you? Then he goes on and says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed or blown about by every wind of new teaching. See, the fivefold ministry, their job is to train the saints, to equip the saints, to help people grow in the knowledge of the word of God. And when we as Christians grow in the knowledge of the word of God and we become firmly rooted in what the word of God says, when new doctrines come our way, we won't be, we won't be misled. We won't be blown off course because people get blown all over the place. And we see this where there's entire sects and entire cults that exist today because they don't understand the importance of sound doctrine. We will not be influenced by people who try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. And I feel that for the church today, that's one of our greatest challenges because the world doesn't know how to receive the love of Christ. And when, when you love people, sometimes you love people firmly you set a boundary. Sometimes you address behaviors that are not acceptable before Christ. That's love. If I love someone, I'm going to tell them the truth. I mean, how many of you, when you've got something stuck in your teeth, you want someone to tell you, hey, you got something stuck in your teeth. Why? So you don't walk around with something stuck in your teeth all day. Come on. I literally was working in my backyard and I ate an egg sandwich last week. And of course, when you're working out in the dirt, you're not really paying much attention. And like four hours later, my wife's like, hey, you've got egg on your face. I was like, oops, no mirrors, no nothing. What am I going to do? I guess I missed that. I was so glad she told me so I didn't walk around for the rest of the evening with egg on my face. But you know, we have to warn people in love about sin. We have to warn them to flee from the wrath that's going to come if they don't repent of their sin and give their life to Christ. We have to tell people the truth. And then what happens? Speaking the truth in love, we grow in every way more and more like Christ, who's the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So let's get to the creed, because this is our... This is our declared belief. This is something that we as a church, we believe in these statements. We're, we're, we're speaking forth words that are aligned with our beliefs, and that's where we have the power to create the solid foundation for our life. I believe in God the Father Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. And today, we're going to complete the creed with the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting. And this is probably one of the most exciting parts of the whole message that we get to do. Because the first thing we want to talk about is forgiveness of sins. There's so many people in our culture today that don't realize that God died on the cross so that they could obtain forgiveness. So many people walk into churches and they never access the forgiveness of sins. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing his word has no place in our hearts. Ouch. The truth is none of us have arrived. None of us 
have met God's standard. All of us has broken his law. All of us have sinned. We've been weighed, we've been measured, and we're desperately lacking. We need Jesus. We need forgiveness of sins. And here's the importance that you have to understand. It's important to note that the doctrine of forgiveness, it has to reconcile the justice of God with the mercy of God. Okay? The justice of a holy God is going to pour out his wrath upon sin. And at the same time, the mercy of God to the penitent sinner or the repentant sinner. We can't overlook guilt. But here's a question for you. Guilt is usually a term that we use in legal courts. You know, are they guilty or are they innocent? But here's my question. What do you do with your guilt? How do you handle guilt in your life? Because when you do something wrong and you break God's law, how many know we feel guilty? Some go to condemnation and shame. Some have gone to the cross and received forgiveness of sins. But what do you do with your guilt? How do you handle guilt? Or do you just ignore it? Do you try to say, well, it wasn't me, and you blame it on everybody else? I mean, didn't Adam do that in the garden? Hey, I think they were both at fault in the garden, but Adam, it was the woman you gave me. Woman, it was the serpent. Nobody likes to deal with their own guilt, do they? How many of you remember back in Leviticus chapter 16? I'm not going to go back and read the whole chapter. But it's talking about at the time of the sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats and one, like Jesus, was sacrificed and his blood was taken and sprinkled on the altar for forgiveness of sins. But there was this other aspect where the other goat, he became known as the scapegoat, the priest, he would lean on the back of his head, transferring the sins of the people symbolically to that goat. And then they would send it off into the wilderness to die. But if you read it closely, it talks about the wilderness is Azazel. And some commentators will tell you that that was just the name of forgetfulness, the wilderness of forgetfulness. And some will tell you some other things. Maybe I'll talk about that. Essentially, I feel that the word Azazel, in simplest term, is forget about it or to be forgotten, symbolizing God forgets about our sins. He takes our sins and he sends it off in the wilderness to be forgotten. Now, some people, here's the false doctrine that people teach. I've heard people teach that Azazel was one of the fallen angels that led humankind into sin, and that was a sacrifice to him. Now, my problem with that is, doesn't the Bible say that we shall have no other gods before him? If we only worship the one true God, then we're not going to sacrifice to some other lesser deity. Okay? Anyways, I come to a different conclusion <laughs> than some of, the, some of the doctrines out there. But you see, God was instructing one goat to be sent away, signifying that he would forget our sin. The other one paid our sin debt. Sounds like Christ on the cross. Now, I have a question for you. Who comes up with these pictures? Who comes up with these ideas? I mean, that picture of the scapegoat and the goat being... Man, that sounds like something that really happened, doesn't it? That's some imagery that we see happened a little bit later. I mean, do you think when God wrote the Old Covenant through men, women... Do you think that when he wrote it, he put a little disclaimer after that said something like, any similarity to actual events in person is purely coincidental? I don't think so. I think he wrote the Old Covenant pointing to one place. You know where he wrote the Old Covenant pointing to? Jesus. And when Jesus was a young boy, man, and he was reading the scriptures... And he was looking at some of the prophecies that were talking about him. I can see him going, gulp. <laughs> Man, God, uh, this is about me, isn't it? He's the one guy who it really is all about. I've talked to many people in our world today, and there's a lot of people that think the world circles around them. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you think the world revolves around you because it's all about you and what you want. But the Bible is about Jesus and what God wants. And it was written specifically to bring point to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the one who was going to pay our sin debt and give us forgiveness of sins. If you get a revelation of forgiveness of sins, it'll set you free because you won't be walking around in shame anymore and condemnation. You realize that your guilt has been sent away. And then the doctrine of forgiveness of sins, it actually has many perspectives. It depends on your theological camp. I'll go through a couple of them just to give you an idea how this works. Arminian theology, okay? Even John Wesley kind of falls under this one that I'm gonna talk about. They kind of put forgiveness of sins at God's discretion. And, and they call it the governmental view of atonement. Jesus as a substitute for sinful man suffered the sins of mankind. Well, I agree with that, except for this part. He didn't experience the full or the exact punishment for sin when he went to the cross. He was just a, he was a substitute and they kind of gave him this token punishment. There's another doctrine I hear about how they talk about Jesus died for all our sins and he's forgiven all of our sins, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins. And I know, and I can prove to you theologically, Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins once and for all. We don't have to crucify him again and again and again. But I, I, I get challenged by statements like that because the only time you get forgiveness of sins is when you confess your sins and repent of them. In the scriptures, you're only going to see them reference forgiveness to past sins. Your present sins have to be confessed and forgiven, confessed and repented of. Your future sins have to be confessed and repented of. You know, in John 69, it says, the world's sin is that they refuse to believe in me. The only sin God can't forgive you of is the one you don't confess. If you don't believe in Christ as your savior, you're never gonna confess your sin, you're not gonna receive forgiveness. Are you catching this? And you know, so many people today, that leads us into, uh, you know, hey, once you're saved, you're always saved. No, you're not. I will hugely disagree with that doctrine and I'll go toe to toe with anyone on it because if you don't confess and repent of your sin, how are you gonna obtain forgiveness? Now, as Christians, we're in this process of sanctification. I know sometimes people mess up and fall down, then they have to repent of their sin and then they get back up and they continue on in the journey. Do I think you suddenly become not a Christian because you fell down? No, but you need to get back up. Well, pastor, what happens to the people that fall down and they don't get to repent before they die? I guess they get to have a conversation with Christ about that. I think they still go to heaven. That's not the issue. But God hates sin. He hates sin in the life of Christians. We're coming into a day and an age where we can't not tolerate the works of the flesh anymore in our lives. We can't tolerate pride anymore. We can't tolerate sexual immorality anymore, not in the church. We don't have time for that. We can't afford it anymore. We can't afford apathy anymore in the church. We can't afford prayerlessness in the church anymore. See, it's not just the sins you commit, it's the sins, you, the things you're supposed to do that you know you don't. We're coming into a day and age when men and women need to live filled with the Holy Spirit and they need to be obedient instantly because your very life and the life of many others is gonna come to the place where it depends on your obedience to the word of God and what the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. For me, I looked at the substitutionary view. Some call it the vicarious view. Christ was sinless. He took his guilt. He took our guilt. He took the sin debt on himself at the cross. He suffered the penalty we deserved, including death. Now God forgives our sins because the willing substitute died in our place. Thus, the justice of God is satisfied against sin because death took place. That was the penalty of sin. And at the same time, 
the mercy of God was extended because Christ died in our place. Realistically, we see the judge and moral lawgiver took our place. That's mercy at its greatest. Look at Isaiah 53, verses four to six, or Romans 3, 24 through chapter four, verse five. I won't read them today. But we all need forgiveness. Are we understanding we've all sinned from Genesis to Revelation? We see that humans need forgiveness. And I think there's all kinds of weird stuff about forgiveness out there. I mean, some people I know will preemptively ask for forgiveness from their wives just in case they do something wrong. Others will never ask forgiveness when they're wrong. That reminds me. It's barbecue season, people. You know what that means? It means that every good husband wants to be a blessing to his wife, so he volunteers to cook dinner. So he says, honey, I'll barbecue tonight. So this is kind of the process of how the barbecue rules are supposed to work. The wife goes out and buys the meat, prepares it, seasons it, tenderizes it. The husband walks out to the barbecue, lights it with his iced tea, sits down. The wife will bring the meat out to the man with all the utensils required to cook the meat, staying out of the three-meter exclusion zone where all male bonding and testosterone and other manly things happen. The man, catch this, places the meat onto the grill. The woman goes inside, makes the salads, the vegetables, all the condiments for the meat, everything gets ready, prepares the silverware, the forks, the spoons, the drinks for everybody else in the family. She comes outside and tells the man he's doing a great job cooking. He asks her for another iced tea while he flips the meat over. The woman goes back inside, finishes all the preparations. The man takes the meat off of the grill and places it into the plate that the woman provided for him. She takes it inside and serves everyone dinner. After dinner, she cleans up, does the dishes, washes everything down, cleans the grill, puts the cover on it. And the man, sitting on the couch with his third iced tea, looks at his wife and says, wasn't it nice that you had the night off, honey? And then just presumes that women can't be pleased when she looks a little unhappy with him. You know, I share that. It's kind of funny, but the truth is some people are like that. They're just oblivious to what's going on around them. They have the sensitivity of a brick wall. Okay. We need to come to a place of higher maturity as the body of Christ. So forgiveness of sins is a key part of what we believe because if you never learn to receive forgiveness of sins and to grant forgiveness to others, you're going you're gonna to struggle in your faith. You're going to walk around condemned. You're going to walk around guilty. And you know, if God forgets about my sin, then I need to forget about my sin too. How about you? If God forgets about your sin, you need to forget about your sin too. We need to stop continuing on in it and stop rehearsing it. You can't change what you did. The next thing we do is we go into the resurrection of the body in 2 Corinthians 4.14. We know that God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will also raise us up with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, We are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do not, but we do know that we will be like him for he, we will see him as he really is. But wait, there's more. Philippians 3.20. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, it's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. What a great picture. We have our weak, broken bodies like a seed being planted into the ground to be raised to everlasting life. The seed is weak, but the plant is strong. 
when the body gets planted in the ground one day, or maybe one day we'll be alive and get consumed by fire. It doesn't matter to me. I get a new body, a glorious body, a spiritual body. I get a body that's going to be just like the one Jesus had after the resurrection that's not going to decay. It's not going to break down. I mean, for me, hey, I get my hair back. My neck gets fixed. My feet aren't going to be sore. This frail earth suit that we're housed in becomes an eternal house. The new body is a great thing. And I'm telling you that this leads really closely to life everlasting that we as Christians have to understand. Not only do we get resurrected to eternal life, we get eternal life forever. What does John 5 tell us? In verse 24, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They'll never be condemned for their sins, but they've already passed from death into life. And I assure you, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice. The voice of the Son of God. And those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he's granted that same life-giving power to the Son. And he's given him authority to judge everyone because he's the son of man. So don't be surprised. Indeed, the time's coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's son. They will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. And therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own. That passage is one of the most encouraging Yet the most terrifying passage you're going to ever read in the scripture. Why? For saints, people like us who have repented of our sin, we've purposed to obey Jesus, we've purposed to walk in his love and honor him and obey his commands, we're going to get resurrected to eternal life, a life of glory. That's encouraging. Because this life at best is temporary. But for people that don't know God, that refuse to acknowledge Christ as their Lord and Savior, that in their pride and their arrogance, they think they found another way to get to heaven. That's the most terrifying verse in the Bible. Because it says the dead are going to come back to life and they're going to have to stand before a righteous judge. And without the blood of Jesus on your life, without the forgiveness of sins that I talked about a little bit earlier, that's not going to end well for them. They're going to rise to judgment and an eternity away from the presence of God and the saints. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a grace harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came in the world through a man, Now the resurrection from the dead began through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Christ was the first fruit. He was the first one to conquer death. He was the first one to conquer death and stay alive. He was the first one to get a glorified body. He was the first one. And we, because he went before us, now we too can get a glorified body. Watch, in John 17, 3, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. You know, maybe you're listening to me today. Maybe your friend said, hey, watch this, or maybe someone shared it on Facebook and you tuned in for a few minutes. I want to explain something very simply. From the beginning of time as we know it, in the garden, they call it Eden. There was Adam and Eve, and they partook of the fruit that they were told not to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their conscience were awoken, and they became aware of right and wrong. And the day of innocence ended, and our conscience was awoken, and the law of sin was released in the earth, and death was released in the earth, and the destruction that sin and death cause was released in the earth. And for thousands of years, really, mankind lived under the sway of sin. Mankind had no recourse. 
God put some temporary measures in place because he loved mankind and he made a covenant with them, with the nation of Israel, and he brought forth Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, the Chosen One, who lived a sinless life. God basically clothed himself with human flesh and lived among us. But he was killed, murdered on a cross, on a tree. And as his perfect sinless blood was shed, the sin of mankind, the debt, the wrath of God was satisfied because the blood was shed to pay the debt of sin. And he was the only one that would have been qualified to pay that sin debt because he himself was sinless. What does that mean for you and I? We've all broken God's law. You know you've broken God's law. I don't even have to talk to you for a long time about it and you already feel convicted by the word of God that I've been reading to you over the last few minutes. Some of you know already that you're sinners. But see, I was talking about forgiveness of sins and that appeals to you. Why? Because we all need forgiveness of sins. But the truth is, you have to come to the place in your heart where you repent of your sin, you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord, and then you start obeying his commands and teachings. And one of the things that he tells us to do is to repent. So if each and every one of us can repent of our sin, turn it over to Jesus, accept his sacrifice, then we can be, the Bible uses the language born again, or we can be saved. We become a new creation. So I just want to pray with you. Father, I thank you for every person that's hearing at the sound of my voice today. And Lord, we all have to confess our sin to you. And we all acknowledge that we're, we've broken your law and we've sinned. But Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus on the cross that took away my sin and will take away the sin of my friends today. And as we repent and turn from our life of sin, we look to you, Jesus, as our Savior and ask you to help us to live a Christian life, a holy life. Lord, in the natural, in our minds, we don't know how we're going to live a holy life, but we trust that you're going to work in and through us to accomplish this and lead us to truth each day. So thank you for saving us and setting us in your kingdom. Help us to honor you by loving others today in Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you prayed that with me for the first time, please reach out to our facilitators online and they'll get you connected and someone will give you a call to talk a little bit more about this new journey that you began today. But really, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for, church. Everything you've done in this life has consequence or reward for the next life. It's kind of like the dress rehearsal. 2 Peter 3, 11 to 15. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along on that day. Everyone say that day. He will set the heavens on fire. The elements will melt away in flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he's promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure, blameless, and sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. You know, as I was meditating during worship on some of the things I was going to say, this kind of dropped into my spirit, and I want to share it with you. Everything we do, we live as men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, and we obey God in the moment. And I believe that when you come to that place, the resurrection life of Christ comes alive in you and you're living in the natural world and the spiritual world at the same time. We have to be connected to our home where our citizenship is, which is heaven, not just connected to the things of this earth. But I want to give you an example in the Bible of this. In Acts chapter 7, I'm going to read just two verses, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. He was alive on earth, but he was looking into the heavens. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man that was operating in both realms at the same time. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And you see right from the first century, the antichrist spirit that was in the earth got enraged and they took him out of the city and they stoned him. 
But Stephen was living in both worlds at the same time. I don't even, personally, from everything I've heard, I don't even believe he felt it as the stones were hitting him because God was already taking him to the place of his future home and to the place of glory. If you read the accounts of a lot of the martyrs, there's accounts and they, they're waving their hands in the air and as the skin was, as they were being burned alive for their faith, as the skin was falling off their bones, they were still waving their arms wide because they felt no pain and they were praising their savior. They translated to the next life because the spirit world is more real than this natural world that we live in and when are we gonna figure it out, church? When are we gonna get this? that this is the temporary assignment. God has you here for one purpose and one purpose only, to take the message of hope to others. That's it. He doesn't need you to do anything else except share the love of God with the lost and dying humanity. And I just read it. The reason he hasn't come back yet is because he's patient and he's given lots of people time to repent. Our Lord's patient gives people time to be saved. Listen, we're going to be going into a series on life and death because we really got to start framing life and we got to start framing death. Because the more people I talk to, the more I realize is our concepts of life and death are warped. They're very consistent with humanism. That's a sad state for God's church to live in. You know, as I was looking over this, I, I, I really felt there's a couple things. It's time for us to stop being complacent and apathetic. It's time for the church to arise and start taking their place. But consistently over the years, one of the frustrations we have is people say, oh, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this, and then we do that, and then they don't come. Around a long time in churches. Oh, yes, let's do this. Okay, we do that. Then why aren't you there doing that with us? It was your idea. So what we do now, we just want to get God's ideas. What is God telling us to do? We're going to do that, and the church should align with God's ideas. You know, hey, Wednesday nights, they've been talking about culture redefined. Series of conversations, group of panelists, they've been excellent. It baffles me that more people in our church are not engaging in this content so they can gain insight, wisdom, and understanding and revelation of what God's doing here in Windsor. If you're falling behind on that or haven't tuned into that, you should be going to YouTube in searching Windsor Christian Fellowship Culture Redefined and play catch up. Otherwise, I feel you're missing out on a greater part of what God's launching here. And he wants people like you and me to be involved and engaged in this and he's given us the path. You know, we're kind of shut down again for a few more weeks and there's lots of thoughts that we have on this. I have my own thoughts on this. But realistically, we're praying and we're seeking God. We want to be a light to our community. And I think in the next few weeks, we're going to come out with some ways that we as Christians can shed our light and let our light shine out in the community. And some of our team members have been touching base with some community organizations that need some support, need some, compare, some care. And there's some groups that are really struggling right now. And we want to be able as a church to be a light to those groups. There's a couple more things I want to talk about. First thing, log into our pre-show. Come a few minutes early. I don't understand why people have to show up at the last possible second or five minutes late. Come a little bit early, then you won't be stressed. I mean, I assure you, if you're going somewhere where you're excited about, you get there on time. I've never gone to a football game with anyone that wasn't wanting to get there like an hour before the game started. I don't know too many people that walk in in the middle of the second quarter. I feel like if church starts at this time, we should be there prepared, ready to enter in. We should be praying for the service, praying that we're going to receive from the ministry of the word. 
And, you know, so log into the pre-show and, and, and listen to the key information that's coming out to you. So many people call our receptionist and go, I didn't get the data. I'm like, well, if you would have listened in the service, we told you. Oh, but you weren't logged in at that time or you weren't sitting here at that time. Uh, if Drew and Kim, if you guys could grab the mic and come on up here. You know, we have live prayer five days a week for one hour. And I know some of you work and you can't get online, but we stream it to YouTube. You can go log in later and join with us. It's a day where the church needs to pray like we've never prayed before. It's, it's a time. We even went through a whole series, if my people will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wickedness. But we hear the word of God, but what does it take for the church to do it? Do you think maybe the curse on our land that's shutting down churches and governments and businesses has something to do with the fact that God's people aren't radically praying like they've never prayed before? And I know some of you are, but I'm confident that all of you aren't. And you know how I know that? Because if every person listening today was praying on a daily basis for God to get involved in our land, things would start to shift. Things would be shifting. There's a remnant, there's groups of people that are praying and crying out to God daily. But there's many that are prayerless and you need to repent of your prayerlessness. Kim works with our prayer ministry. She's actually gonna be heading it up in the new future and uh, that's a change we're making even right now for the, for the daily prayer. But you know, I'm baffled that we ask people to come in on a schedule maybe once a week or every other week and lead in prayer for an hour with the number of people in our church and the number of people that have been around long enough, they should be mature. I'm surprised we don't have lines of people lined up to come and lead in prayer. But instead I hear, well, I could never do that. I couldn't pray like that, pastor. Well, why not? You can watch a TV show for an hour. Why can't you pray for an hour? You can talk on the phone with your friends for an hour and text them for an hour. You can play soccer for an hour. Why can't we pray for an hour? I'm just asking the question. What's your excuse? You guys ready? Father, I thank you for the bread in our hands. You can stand with me. And Lord, as Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Knowing, Lord, that his body was going to be broken, knowing that he was going to endure suffering and the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. And he still sat at the table with the very man that was going to betray him to the authorities. And he operated in love. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew the other disciples were going to run away. But he sat perfectly humble, perfectly loving. And he instituted a covenant meal that we can partake of together. So Father, as we have the bread in our hand, I thank you that we have a covenant with you in the day and hour that we live in, Lord, that you heal our bodies of sickness and disease. It cannot stay inside of us because the life of God is flowing through his people. Father, that when we lay hands on the sick, your word says they get better. When we preach your word to others, you back up the preaching of the word with signs, wonders, and miracles. Father, increase the faith in your people that they would actually demonstrate your love to this lost world that we live in. And today, Father, we receive forgiveness of sins and we thank you for the resurrection life of Christ that is inside of us. It's alive and it's powerful and we can be so excited that we have a hope that our future with you is secure in the name of Jesus. This one. You know, Pastor RJ asked uh, Kimberly and I if we would present the cup. And uh, when we were worshiping, this one song really 
hit me. And it hit me in a way that, you know, we desire to be closer to him. We desire to live for him. We desire the good things he has for our lives and the peace and the joy and the, the lightness of being sin-free. Yet we have such a hard time coming to him and repenting of our sin. And it feels so heavy talking about sin, thinking about sin, our sin, to sometimes to the point where we are almost afraid to go to him and repent and confess and get right with him. And I've read, I, I looked up this song and it said, Lord I, know, Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. My heart wants something new, so I surrender all. All I want is to live within your love, be undone by who you are. My desire is to know you deeper. Lord, I will open up again, throw my fears into the wind. I am desperate for a touch of heaven. You know, we want these things, but like I said, it's, it's, we're under the weight of sin. But when we repent it and we get right with him, it opens up communion and fellowship with him. Sin separates us from God. When we repent it, it opens up the gateways of heaven, a clear pathway to hear from him, to have communion with him, to receive from him and to be able to use, be used by him in others' lives. And I think this is a great opportunity to get right with him. Um, you know, the word says that if we do this in an unworthy manner with sin in our hearts, that we bring condemnation on ourselves. So I just ask you to take five, you know, 30 seconds, get right with God, confess your sins, have him search your heart, reveal to him, reveal to you the unconfessed sin in your life so that you can have that fellowship, that oneness that you've been desiring to have with him. Father, search our hearts. At some point, Pastor RJ was saying how um, a lot of us in just our society right now, um, even within the church, that you know, we think that our life revolves around us. Um, we definitely see that in the world. And I don't know about you guys, but I still get caught up, um, probably on a daily basis, where my thoughts are just so about myself or a specific relationship or what do I have to do in my schedule and making sure my schedule gets done and you guys know what I'm talking about, so on and so forth, right? But I love the fact that we can just go to him and surrender ourselves and just be like, you know what? I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I get so tired of myself. I'm just like, oh, just shut it off, Lord. I just need you to shut this off. But he is so faithful and he's so amazing. His, his forgiveness is like, well, you guys know, right? Like, it's just like this breath of fresh air. And then, boom, that closeness. Like, if it wasn't for what he did, I don't know, like, where would we be, right? Like, I'm so thankful, so thankful for his sacrifice, for his broken body, for his blood, and I think it's only because of his blood are we able to walk into the throne room and stand before a holy God. Like, I'm convinced that Jesus has to come with us. His blood has to cover us for us to be able to stand before a holy God, a perfect God. And I know a lot of us, like, I don't stand around and go, like, oh, I want to sin. I don't. And I'm sure you guys don't either. You know, but it's just part of the flesh. It's just kind of, it's reality. You know, so I just want to encourage you guys today that when something does happen, you know, like a judgment or a gossip, or if there's something deeper, a sin that's even deeper than that, you know, and you feel that guilt, that's just an emotion so you can turn yourself towards the Lord. That's all that is. That's all it is. And Pastor RJ is completely right. Like it can either drive us into shame or it drives us to the Lord. So please remember, I just want to encourage you that when you feel that guilt, just run to Jesus because he's so just ready and willing and so able to forgive and cleanse.
And so, Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you, God, that when Jesus hung on that cross, that veil was torn and that we are able now, in this moment, to come to you before a holy God, a a perfect throne room. And it's because of your blood, Jesus. It's because you come with us and that you're with us, Holy Spirit, every time we talk with the Heavenly Father. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your forgiveness of sin. We thank you, God, that you forget. And, Lord, if we are holding on to something, Lord God, that we don't want to forget, that we feel like we are need to stay in guilt, that it is only like that we, oh, whoa, that we feel that the only way that things can be correct is if we hold on to the shame. And, Lord, that is so not okay because you took the shame. Oh, church, it's, it's actually a sin to hold on to the shame because it's pride. We think if we hold on to the shame and we hold on to the guilt that we're actually taking the punishment, guys, that's not good. Give it up. Give it up. Because Jesus took the, sh- the shame and the guilt. We can't do it. We can't do it. So, Father, right now we stand before you and we surrender the guilt and the shame. And we ask you within our minds and in our hearts and our emotions, Father, would you please help us to forget too? If you say you forget, will you please help us to forget as well? Cover us in your blood. Father, I plead the blood of Jesus right now over my brothers and sisters, over the church around the world, Father God. Right now, just plead the blood of Jesus over them and through them, and in them. Father, your blood heals, it protects, it releases, Father God. So right now, I just pray that you would release your body to do what you are wanting us to do. That we surrender ourselves and we stop thinking so much about ourselves. I know, Lord, that there's times where we need to with you, but that we more focus on your agenda and not ours. We thank you for this resurrected life, Lord God. We thank you for your forgiveness. Have your way, Lord. You are all that matters. And we just thank you for your blood. Let's partake. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we're going to remain faithful to what we've been taught from the beginning. And Lord, as we do that, in obedience to you, we can remain in fellowship with the Son, which helps us to remain in fellowship with you. And in this fellowship, Lord, we enjoy the eternal life that you gave us. So as we go in your grace, as we go in your mercy, as we go forgiven, I thank you that we can operate in the resurrection life, Lord, that you've placed inside of us because Jesus resurrected from the dead. And now he is alive and well and we are alive and well. So Lord, no matter what's going on around us, I thank you that as we go forth into the world, that we can change the world for Jesus. In in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. God bless you.